tonight. We have a special guest with us tonight. We have a brand new physician who's joined the Franklin Medical Group, which is a division of St. Mary's Hospital or is part of St. Mary's Hospital. And her name is Dr. Silpa Shetty. Hi, Dr. Shetty. Hi, Robin. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you for joining us. Well, you don't have a, you don't have a choice when you join our Franklin Medical Group. The first time I grab you, as soon as you're here, before you get really, really busy. But I think we've had you with your roller skates on already, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Been- I started about two weeks ago, and I'm loving it so you're far. You're loving it. I'm mm-hmm. so glad. Well, and if you're, the name is familiar to you, it's because um, Dr. Shetty's husband is also part of the Franklin Medical Group, Dr. Shohan Shetty, who is a general surgeon with a specialty in robotics and bariatric surgery um, right. at Franklin Medical Group at St. Mary's, and he's been on with us before, too. He was a yes. little he was a little nervous the first time he came on. So if you're listening, Dr. Shetty, I know you were a little nervous. <laughs> so I was trying to tell Dr. Uh, Dr. Silpa Shetty tonight that this is very easy. It's a real conversation, and um, and if you have any questions, please feel free to call in 203-757-1320. So I should tell you Dr. Shetty's specialty. She's an endocrinologist, and we are very excited to have our, an endocrinologist join us. We um, have an, another endocrinologist in our system, Dr. Anna Freitag, and Dr. Thomas Gnidek, who recently became part of Franklin Medical Group. Now we have three, which is really great because this community, there was definitely a need for endocrinology. But it's one of those fields, I think, that is confusing Mm-hmm. to some, mm-hmm. um, trying to understand what it is when you get referred. So first, I think I want to ask you, what made you choose endocrinology? So endocrinology is, um, as most people know, a subspecialty of internal medicine. And um, when I was an internal medicine resident going through my training, um, I found that I was always really fascinated by hormones, which is essentially what the field of endocrinology is about. Um basically endocrinology studies all the different hormones in the body how they interact with each other and how they affect different body systems and so um, that was always something that really fascinated me but more than that I think that um, the various endocrine disorders and I guess we'll be talking about some of them today um, allow me to have kind of a a close long-term relationship with Mm -hmm. my patients um, which I think is really satisfying that's it's incredible and and I'm not shy to say as I said to you before we came on endocrinology for me in nursing school was very confusing Mm -hmm. but I think when you're a young student at the age of 18 19 years old Mm -hmm. and you're looking at this it's very confusing and you truly don't understand how it affects different functions in the body you know and tonight we're going to talk about a few we're going to really touch on diabetes Mm -hmm. as well as um thyroid Thyroid. conditions, which I Mm -hmm. think are pretty big Mm -hmm. in this community. But I know you were at our event um, a couple weeks ago for um, the Spirit of Women, which was called Fight Fatigue. That's right. And your your partner, Dr. Anna Freitag, Mm -hmm. we had her as part of the panel, and you got to see Mm -hmm. um, the type of audience that we get. We had a lot of women, but there were a lot of questions. Yes. And she was Mm -hmm. one of the the physicians that stayed behind, and people kept asking. Yeah, yeah, answered a lot of questions. I really enjoyed her talk, and I think most people in the room that day did. I think she touched on a lot of really important um, topics. Uh, I know the focus that day was really um, menopause, menopause, right? Um, and that's another that's another time in a woman's life when there's a lot of changes in the hormones. and um, And I think she did a great job of, of touching on all of those topics. She did, and, and it shows that the endocrine system is incredibly complex. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's incredibly complex, and I think that's what's always confused me over the years. Mm-hmm. But for purposes of tonight, I thought it was really important that we talk a little bit about diabetes. Our next program for Spirit of Women is called Tame Type 2. So we are going to Mm -hmm. be focusing on the pre-diabetic as well as the type 2 diabetes. And maybe what we can do is talk a little bit about both of those, pre-diabetes into type 2 diabetes. Sure. So, um, So as you know, Diabetes, and in particular type 2 diabetes, is a huge problem. Um, it's estimated that about 29 million people in America have type 2 diabetes, and they think that about 8 million of those are actually undiagnosed. So, so there's a lot of people out there who, who don't, don't even, even know, know it. that they have it. 
And what's even more scary is that there's, it's estimated that there's about 86 million people who are actually pre-diabetic. And pre-diabetes is one of those things which you don't know that you're pre-diabetic unless right. you actually go and have yourself tested. Right. There's really no symptoms. Um, <laughs> and I think it's key that we recognize what the risk factors are and that people get themselves tested if they have those risk factors. So looking at the risk factors for pre-diabetes <clears throat> mm-hmm. versus symptoms. Right, exactly. Mm. Um, because, you know, if we can identify these these people who have prediabetes, then we can help them with, you know, interventions early on right. that could delay and in some instances even prevent them from developing type, the two type 2 diabetes, diabetes in the future. Right? So for a pre-diabetic, would you pick it up on a routine Physical, when people get their yearly physical. So on a yearly physical, typically your physician would pick up that you have the risk factors. And that typically should prompt screening with blood work. Um, And some of the risk factors that that you want to be on the lookout for are basically, well, some things we can't change. um, And those are things like increasing age. If you belong to a high-risk ethnic group, so like what would that be? African Americans, Hispanics, Asians, um, really, just tend to be at a higher risk okay. to, to develop diabetes. Um, other things, if you're overweight or obese, um, if you have a sedentary lifestyle, you don't exercise, and your job is really a desk job, hmm. um, you're just going to be at higher risk. The other thing is, if you have conditions that you know are associated with diabetes, for example, people who have high blood pressure or high cholesterol it's more likely that you probably have diabetes or you're at risk for diabetes as well. Even if both of those are under control, <laughs> your your blood pressure and your so, cholesterol? Right. So they so blood pressure and cholesterol per se would not cause you to have right. diabetes, but it's just that sometimes those are signs of having metabolic problems mm-hmm. and maybe just, just like a warning that, you know, you have these two, maybe you should get checked for the other one as well. So then... How would a physician check as part of the routine exam? So as part of the... As part of your physical blood work, um, your physician, if they feel that you do have these risk factors, um, might screen you with a blood test, essentially. And typically, there's a number of blood tests that can be used to diagnose diabetes. A fasting blood sugar Mm -hmm. um, that is over... The value is 126. Typically, we'd like to see more than one abnormal test to say that you have diabetes. Um, And the other thing is your A1C. Okay. So a lot of people might have heard of that blood test because it's done. I mean, if you're diabetic, you've definitely heard of right. it. And what the A1C is, is it gives you an idea of your average blood sugar over a three to six month period. Um, and so you're looking for that number to be over 6.5 to say you have diabetes and really over 5.7 to say that you're at a higher risk to develop diabetes in the future. So it's those two. So it's and fasting it's blood two? sugar as well as the A1C. One or the other. But on two separate tests, two separate occasions, to say someone definitely does have it. There are a couple of other things, like if you have symptoms of diabetes, meaning your blood sugar has to be quite high to have symptoms of diabetes. And what would those symptoms be? So those symptoms would be feeling tired, dehydrated, peeing a lot, feeling thirsty all the time, losing weight for no obvious reason. Um, All of those are signs of severely uncontrolled diabetes. So if you go to your physician, I'm going to peel it back a little bit. So if you go to your physician and you have your routine screening and he says, you know what, you have some of these risk factors. Mm -hmm. Let's let's, you know, just run the blood Mm -hmm. sugar on you. And they just run. Would they just run the blood sugar? Would they run both the blood sugar as well as an A1C? So it. It depends. Okay. Um, you know, they might want to just, they could just run a fasting blood sugar. It and would see have what to it be says. And see what it shows. If you are in that in-between range of 100 to 126, they would say that you have, they would basically say impaired fasting glucose. Mm. And what that really means, it kind of means the same as pre-diabetes. You're at risk. You're at risk. Um, so really, either one is acceptable. The other thing that is acceptable based on the American Diabetes Association guidelines would be a glucose tolerance test. We usually don't do that. We do it in pregnant women. Mm. We typically don't do it otherwise <laughs> because it's just, it's kind of, it's a cumbersome test. You right. have to go there, drink the glucose, get right. your sugar tested. But that's also an acceptable test. Um, and then if you have overt symptoms that we described earlier of diabetes, right. you can just do a random sugar. And if it's over 200, that also meets criteria for diagnosis.
is. So if you if the physician diagnosed you as a pre-diabetic, mm-hmm. what at that point happens? Would you see an endocrinologist at that point, or would you work with your primary care physician? Okay, so... You could definitely work with your primary care physician at that point um, if you were, if you're pre-diabetic, um, because typically at that stage, depending on your risk factors, the first thing we would try is um, diet and exercise. Right. And there was a, a big study done just a few years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine that really showed that even a very modest amount of weight loss, even five to ten percent of your body weight, can have a favorable effect on your risk of on on your diabetes. So. That's it's reasonable if you have the resources to go see a nutritionist and to you know do all of that. That's the thing, right? That's the thing, and I think that's where I think that's where people in the community have an issue with compliance mm-hmm. because it's maintain. You know, we all have these great ideas. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna lose weight. I'm gonna exercise. Right. All those you know, especially after the mm-hmm. holidays, we all have these resolutions. I'm gonna lose weight. I'm gonna do all right. these things. But it's really hard. It's hard. And you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the advantages of going to a diabetes and endocrine center is right. that you get to see you get to see a specialist who kind of goes through a lot of these things with you. But you also have on site a nutritionist who is typically not just a nutritionist, but somebody who is also a certified diabetes educator so which is right so they have really have a big focus specifically on diabetes and you know how to manage how to manage your diet in a way that will allow you to um, get your sugars under control and you know promote weight loss so that you might potentially be able to delay the onset of the disease the the onset of type 2 diabetes which is now you know, the direction you don't want to go in. Right. And, you know, you just brought that up. So we, you know, I was going to bring that up um, after we talked about diabetes, but we should throw it in there now. So mm-hmm. part of the team approach that we put together with Dr. Gunaitic, yourself, and Dr. Freitag mm-hmm. is this Diabetes Endocrinology Center. Right. And when I had talked to you, mm-hmm. oh, about a year or so ago mm-hmm. now, even more, and we were talking about you know, St. Mary's Hospital, you were finishing mm-hmm. up your fellowship in Texas, right. I believe. That's right. right. You in have Dallas. a Texas license plate, right? I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, had, you had said it's so important to have this type of center. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as we move forward and we're talking here about diabetes, tell me why a center like this is so important and, and maybe highlighting just what you did and maybe a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I think that, that the the main thing, what I really like about having an integrated center like this is number one, you've got, you've got, you know, you've got more than one specialist and we're all working together. So supposing one of us isn't there, at least you can see another specialist. You've got your dietitian right there. So it's really nice because we can interact with each other. Supposing I have a patient with diabetes and I really want to focus on teaching them how to count their carbohydrates or do something, you know, complicated like that. I can speak to the dietitian right there, tell her what I'm looking for. She can tell me how she's getting on with the patient. And, you know, just having that all those lines of communication open just helps us deliver much better patient care. The other thing is when you when you're in a diabetes and endocrine center, you have a lot of tools at your fingertips to kind of figure out what exactly is the problem? Why is this person, why are we unable to control their blood sugar? Um, you know, there's a lot of technology now that we can use, including continuous glucose monitors um, and things like that, that give us, really give us um, kind of a little window into what's happening with the patient's blood sugars when they're not in the office. What's happening, you know, in the middle of the night? What's happening in the middle of the day? What's happening when they exercise? Wow. Um, you know, and it's just the more information we have, the better to make right, the right absolutely. choices about which drugs and, you know, what interventions to recommend. And it's nice to have all that right there. And, you know, it's so important to know that you're right. It is a specialty within internal medicine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've gone through that whole internal medicine piece. So you do know the entire body. Mm-hmm. But this is that subspecialty mm-hmm. that gives you that window to all of the endocrine system, which is so important. And I know Dr. Gnidic has been doing this for so long in our yes. community. And I'm sure for you and mm-hmm. Dr. Freitag to have him yes, as your team, ab- part of your team, and as one of the leaders. Right, I it's think incredible his it, knowledge. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's fantastic. He's very experienced and really approachable and a great resource. I mean, I've definitely found that, you know, to go to for, for, for any, you know, for a second opinion or for advice about things. So it's definitely nice to have that, to be able to confer with, you know, um, 
people with different experiences yeah, and with more experience. Because I think that you learn so much more from your patients mm-hmm. over time, and then yes. you bring that knowledge forward as Absolutely. years go by. So to have the years yeah. of experience that he has mm-hmm. and his patient knowledge is incredible. And I was so impressed yesterday when I stopped by your office and I got to meet Leslie for the first time. Mm-hmm. And yes. her Leslie's our nutritionist. You're our new, yep, your new nutritionist, and she's a certified diabetic educator. Mm-hmm. She is incredible. And I watched her with a patient. And I, the patient was just so happy mm-hmm. to have had that conversation with her. And I think you're right because it's expensive to have to go out and hire a, a private nutritionist. Right. You, a lot of us don't have those resources. Right. And insurance covers. If you're a diabetic, mm-hmm. the insurance covers the It does. The it covers the nutrition visit. And nutrition is such a key part of the of the equation when you're trying right. to manage diabetes. It's a key part of their success. Right. To manage exactly. it. Or to, to prevent it in mm-hmm. some cases. So we have, you know, we've discussed that pre-diabetic patient, but then there's those patients that come to you when they've newly been diagnosed as type mm-hmm. 2 diabetes. Yes. And you get those referrals generally from the primary care mm-hmm. physician or maybe from a, a gynecologist right. or what have you. So what do you do when you get a newly diagnosed patient? What What's some of the things that you go through with type 2 diabetes patients? So typically we'll start with really trying to get a good history about mm-hmm. when did you, because there are some patients who have just been diagnosed. There are some patients who were diagnosed a while ago, but their diabetes has suddenly gotten a lot worse and a lot more difficult to manage for various reasons. So usually taking a really thorough history, uh, you know, family history, trying to understand everybody's diabetes is different and what might have triggered or worsened their diabetes. Um, I think... um, that's the first thing we'll do is just get a really good history, try to know what medicines they've tried. Have they tried anything? Are they open to trying medicines? What are their preferences when it comes to medications? You know, it's a very exciting time for diabetes. Um, in the last 10 years, we've had so many new drugs There's come so out. Many drugs. There's so many more options than there were just, just 10 or 15 years ago. So, it makes sense for us to really involve the patient in the decision making. You know, what are they what are they looking for? Are they overweight and obese? Is weight loss an important part of the treatment, which it usually is in diabetes? And we have drugs that target both. So, you know, all of that plays into the decision as to whether we're going to put them on medication, whether we're going to manage them with lifestyle interventions. Do they need more than one medication? Um, and I really like to involve the patient in that decision making because... Right. Diabetes is just one of those diseases where the role of the patient is so important. Right. It's not just taking a pill and moving right. on with your life. There's so exactly. many things that intersect exactly. to help to maintain the disease process. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned different medications. So mm-hmm. is there one medication that a physician tends to go to, or is it really based on the person? It's so, a match kind of thing. So most of the time for type 2 diabetes, your first choice of medication is almost always going to be metformin. Okay. Um, and it's a great drug. It's been around for a very long time. We know that it's safe. We know that it's effective. Mm. Um, and one of the nicest things is we know it can help a little bit with weight loss. It definitely doesn't make you gain weight, which right. is the problem with right. a lot of diabetes drugs. Um, but the next step after metformin, that's that's really kind of up in the air. And that's where we really tailor it to the patient. Because there's so many other drugs. There's so many there's options. So, and is it given, are, there, are these drugs given with metformin or are they given They're typically add-on to They're metformin. add-ons or like a complement drug. Right, exactly. And, and what would cause you to do that? So if somebody is on the maximum dose of metformin, and there are some patients who don't tolerate metformin, but if they can tolerate it, which the vast majority do, we will typically always keep them on that and add on a second drug. Um, and, and we have a number of options for that. So now if somebody's on a maximum dose of metformin, they're trying their best with diet and exercise, and we're still seeing their blood work show that they're not where they need to be in terms of control of blood sugar, right. that's when we'll add on the next medicine. Now, have you ever seen... Oh, go ahead, Dr. I'm sorry. I feel like I didn't finish answering your question about what we do at the first visit. So besides, you know, trying to get to know the patient better, seeing what they're willing to do, we'll often, on a case-by-case basis, um, have them 
put on a diagnostic continuous glucose monitor. And basically that's just, and not for, this wouldn't be for every patient, but, um, but for the patient that, that would benefit, you know, from, from us having that information, it's basically a little, um, kind of like a, almost just a little bigger than a coin. It, that's how big it is. It would stick on your skin. There's a tiny needle that you can barely even see that just sits right under your skin. The patient would wear it for about five days and then come and take it off, and it would give us uh, basically five days of information of what their blood sugar is every five minutes. It, wow. That's what it does. And it's a great tool to assess, especially in those patients where you don't know exactly where the problem almost is. like a halter monitor for the heart. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Really kind of like that. You know, they're going about their everyday activities right. the way they normally would, and we can see how their blood sugar fluctuates over so, that time. Whether it's stress, whether it's exercise, mm-hmm. whether it's food, sleep, exactly. what's happening. Exactly. And does that help you to decide the course of treatment in regards to their medications? It definitely does, because if we're you know, if we're seeing that most of their highs are after their meal, we know that it's a postprandial high okay. blood sugar issue okay. as opposed to if we see that it's really high overnight or in the morning before they've eaten, then that's more of what we would call a basal insulin issue or a basal, you know, it's not related to their food. Yeah. So, you know, and there are different drugs to target different things. So having that piece of information is really so useful. So especially with the newly diagnosed mm-hmm. or maybe someone that's uncontrolled, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Exactly. So even for, someone that's been right. di- type t- type two diabetes for many right. years has been on you know has been on many different medicines and we don't know exactly where the problem is because you can have even if you have a patient check their sugar seven or eight times a day which mm. is a huge burden on yeah. the patient you still don't get as much information as you can get from one of these devices. So a, you know you mentioned checking your blood sugar. So a type two diabetic different mm-hmm. from type 1. Mm-hmm. Um, type 2 diabetic, how often do they usually check their blood sugar? So that really varies. If you have mild, you know, type 2 diabetes, your A1C is close to 7, you're on just one oral medicine, we often... We'll say you don't have to check your blood sugar at home as long as you come to us, get your lab work done every three to six months, mm. and things look pretty good. We we still suggest that you have a meter because if you develop symptoms of high right. or low blood sugar, you really need to check. But um, but in those patients, it's really not necessary that they check their blood sugar on a day to day basis. Now, if a patient comes in and they you know you do all this and you get them mm-hmm. on the medication, but they have weight loss Mm -hmm. and they start exercising Mm -hmm. and can they come off of medications Mm -hmm. and stay off of them with that pattern can you Mm -hmm. be type two and then yep you get rid of your medication that's a great question because i think a lot of people ask me that and i think a lot of people wonder that and the truth is you absolutely can but not everybody can right so it's really a case-by-case basis if somebody is very overweight and they, they they are successful in losing you know a large percentage of their body weight and they achieve a normal a normal BMI, right. um, many of those patients may be able to come off medicines and in some instances, you know, they may get back into the pre-diabetic range right. in terms of their, so, you know, So really they're at risk. Yes. You know, they're yes. still at risk. They're still that right. person they're that still at risk. They still yes. need to be careful and make right. sure they pay attention to right. all the things that brought them to that right. in the first place. Exactly. Is it genetic? So a lot of so that's a good question. Some of it is gene- a, a large portion of it is genetic. You know, most of the time people have other people in their family who also have diabetes, right. and there are instances where you know people are a normal weight and they still have type two diabetes. There are plenty of instances mm-hmm. of that, and most of the time that is because of some kind of a genetic issue. Um, and in those cases, you'll often find you know the patients will say, well, you know, my dad or my you know my sister or whoever is also a normal weight and has type 2 diabetes. So that is, I mean, the vast majority of the diabetes we see is related to being overweight and obesity, but it's certainly not the whole picture. And with patients with type 2 diabetes, one one thing that I remember, um, especially because I worked on the orthopedic floor and we had a lot of of patients that had those stressors on their bodies, Mm -hmm. but if a patient is going through a stressor, Mm -hmm. whether it be an emotional stressor, a physical Mm -hmm. stressor due to surgery, how does that affect the blood sugar? in these patients. Mm-hmm. So in a normal, in somebody who does not have diabetes and is not at risk, 
they shouldn't have a high blood sugar in a stressful situation typically because there are so many compensatory mechanisms that that should come into play that don't allow your sugar to go beyond a certain range right. um, unless of course you're getting steroids or something externally right. and that's a separate issue um, but definitely if you do have diabetes then being in a stressful situation will you know an infection a surgery any kind of stress will typically worsen your blood sugar and the reason for that is that when you're in a stressful situation a lot of your stress hormones like cortisol you know epinephrine adrenaline all those kinds of things are right. higher right and all those hormones you know that there's a big interplay with how they increase your production of glucose with how they um interfere with the breakdown of glucose right. and all of these things result in your blood sugars being uncontrolled when you're when you're in those situations so a person that was on oral medications may have to have some insulin to right. compensate? Is that exactly. something that could happen? Yes, absolutely. You'll find that when patients are sick in hospital, maybe right. they have pneumonia, maybe, right. you know, what some things happen and they're in hospital and they're sick. Right. A lot of the times patients who are well controlled on oral meds might need insulin in the short term. Have you ever heard of a case where someone's in the hospital and they're not diagnosed as a pre-diabetic or never had issues with blood sugars mm-hmm. that the stressor now on them whether whatever mm-hmm. it is a heart attack a stroke whatever a mm-hmm. surgery all of a sudden now their blood sugars are through the roof yeah what what how that? does that happen yeah, how yeah. Does that happen? so so yes definitely a stressor can sometimes reveal diabetes that has been otherwise masked by all these compensatory mechanisms. Right. So the primary problem in type 2 diabetes is basically insulin resistance. Mm. And mm. so what that means is that you're, you have, you're still making insulin, unlike the type 1s who truly have insulin deficiency. You're still making insulin, but it's not working properly. Your body can't use it properly. So if you imagine, if you imagine you, you, when you eat something, you're your food gets broken down, it gets absorbed, your blood sugar rises. Now, under normal circumstances, that blood sugar gets into the muscles and all the other tissues where it's needed for energy. Insulin, you can think of kind of like a key that opens the door to allow this blood glucose out of the bloodstream into the muscles, into the Mm. tissues and everywhere else. When you can't use your insulin properly, it doesn't open that door and blood sugar just kind of gets stuck in your bloodstream. And that's when it causes all the damage to the nerves and the eyes and the kidneys. Mm. Now, in the initial stage of type 2 diabetes, your pancreas just ramps up the insulin production and tries to overcome the resistance. So People might be walking around and they have this compensation going on and they don't know that they're at risk. Right. But then you bring in a stressful situation like an illness or a surgery or something like that. And then all of a sudden it's, you know, the pancreas, it's, 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 you know, it can't do it anymore. It just can't keep up. And that's when your diabetes might be revealed. Wow. Wealth of knowledge Mm -hmm. here across from me. Mm -hmm. She was like, how are we going to talk about this for... (laughs) Before we You're go asking on to, the right question. Yeah. <laughs> Before we go on to um, the thyroid, we're going to take a quick break. But one more um, piece on diabetes mm-hmm. I, I wanted to go on is we just touched on it was the gestational diabetes because mm-hmm. you see a lot of those patients. We do. And, um, you know, that's a very important um group of patients. And maybe we'll tell the audience what that is, just in case. Sure. So gestational diabetes is basically when you develop diabetes in pregnancy. And that's different from somebody who has pre-existing diabetes and then becomes pregnant, Mm. um, which is, that's then termed type 2 diabetes and, you know, with a pregnant type 2 diabetic. Gestational diabetes is where there are all these, again, hormones that are produced in pregnancy, some of which... um, like human placental lactogen and other things, some of which raise your blood sugar Mm. and give rise to diabetes. Not in everybody, but in people who are already prone Mm. most of the time. So basically, some of the risks of having diabetes in pregnancy are complications in labor, the baby tends to be bigger if the diabetes is uncontrolled. Their organs tend to be bigger. Um, that's problematic for the baby. Right. It's also problematic for delivery. Oh. It can reach delivery comp. So it's really important. There have been lots of studies to show that if we can tightly control your blood glucose during pregnancy, we can 
drastically reduce your chances of a lot of these complications. Wow. So they usually do the tests on all moms now, mm-hmm. right? So around 24 weeks, I think exactly. it is, Exactly. Right? So they usually do it between 20 to 24 weeks. They do the oral glucose tolerance yep. test. Oh, that Typically, is horrible. That is not fun. It's yes. horrible. And I have to say, I actually failed that test myself. Did you really? Yes. <laughs> My daughter so. just had it, so she did well, thank goodness. But it's yeah. really... Yeah. Oh. And usually the first test is a screening test. Mm-hmm. So you take the 50 grams of glucose and then you check your sugar in an hour. If you do good on, good on that test, then you're done. Right. If you fail that test, like I did, you have to go to the, the, the next test, which is where they check your sugar every hour oh. after you drink the glucose for, for three hours. For, for three hours. Right. And then, so, and then from there, if that's positive too then you have gestational diabetes. And that can be as mild, you know, it could be very mild, in which case we basically get you to check your sugar several times a day and we just put you on a strict diet and we can manage it that way. In some instances, we end up having to go to insulin. Right. Right, but it's so important for the mom it's and the so baby. Important. It's so important. And I found that, you know, pregnant women are actually a great um, a great group of patients to be treating because they're so motivated. Right. Um, and they, they have the baby to they think, have of. The to think right. of. And they do a great job of checking their sugar seven, eight times a day and sticking to the diet. Oh, that's good. Yeah. It's, it's scary, though. It's definitely it is scary. scary for the mom. And, 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 you know, just because pregnancy is a scary time anyway. Exactly. You know, yeah. so to throw that in the mix. Mm-hmm. I know every time my daughter had go she was so nervous about it when i was young and we did it all i know is i got to eat two candy bars before i went (laughs) so you didn't have to drink the syrup oh no you had to do that too so they really used to ramp you up they really used to ramp you up they had something that was called glucocola that i remember it was awful it was like a non-carbonated coca-cola oh my goodness yeah it was pretty pretty (laughs) bad so they come a long way with Mm -hmm. that test we are going to definitely take a few minute break, and when we come back, we are going to talk um, a little bit more about the endocrine system, and we're mm-hmm. going to focus on the thyroid. We will be right back.
Welcome back. Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, Medically Speaking. Thank you again for joining us tonight. And if you have any questions, feel free to call in 203-757-1320. We are medically speaking tonight about endocrinology, that evasive field that made me crazy in nursing school, but is so, so, so important right now and a really big specialty now. And we have with us our brand new endocrinologist at St. Mary's Hospital, Dr. Silpachetti. Hi, Doc. Hi, Robin. Thank you again for joining us. It's been great. We focused the first half of the program on diabetes. Um, I want to make sure, too, that I throw this out, that we have a brand new diabetes and endocrinology center Mm -hmm. that Dr. Shetty is part of, along with um, Dr. Anna Freitag and Dr. Thomas Gnidic. And I know that name is definitely rings a bell in our community. Right. And it's at 1389 West Main Street here in Waterbury. And their number is 203-757-757. 755, I'm sorry, 755-7711. And you can actually find them on our website at stmh.org. So we talked about diabetes, and that's not the only part mm-hmm. of the endocrine system that is part of your specialty. You see a lot of patients with thyroid conditions. And I yeah. thought maybe we'd, we'd do the second half of our show and talk a little bit about thyroid conditions. So maybe you want to talk about the thyroid gland in and of itself. Okay. So, um, yeah, so second to diabetes, thyroid is probably the next biggest um, component of the patients that we see. So the thyroid gland is a small butterfly-shaped gland that is right at the base of your neck. And the main role of the thyroid gland is to produce thyroid hormone. Now, the thyroid gland, like like several other um, endocrine systems in the body is actually under the control of a hormone produced by the pituitary, which is a little uh, gland in the brain. Mm -hmm. And there's a feedback mechanism that occurs between the thyroid hormone and the, what the pituitary releases, which is the TSH or the thyroid stimulating hormone. That messed me up on every test. I'm just saying. It did. <laughs> it did. Now, if, why couldn't I have had you back 30 or so years ago? So the interesting thing about thyroid hormone is that it kind of behaves like the accelerator pedal in your body. Mm -hmm. So what it does is um, when you have too much, thyroid hormone speeds everything up. So for instance, your heart rate goes up, um, your bowels will speed up and you might have diarrhea, your metabolism speeds up. So some people might say that they start to lose weight. Mm. Um, People complain of being anxious, fidgety, Nervous, shaky, tremor, tremors. If your if your levels are particularly high, and hypothyroidism or underactive thyroid, which is actually very common, um, gives you the opposite. <laughs> Everything kind of slows down. People feel kind of sluggish. Um, they might be very fatigued. Their th- thought processes might slow down. Sometimes I have had people complain of that. Their heart rate would slow down. They can be very constipated. They feel cold all the time. Um, and you might see some skin, hair, and nail changes, like hair loss, dry skin, that type of stuff. So how does a patient know or how does an individual know to ask those questions or they go to their primary care physician mm-hmm. and pretty much they look at those symptoms and they run some tests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, because thyroid disease is pretty common, um, it is one of the first things that that your primary care physician probably will screen for if you have any of the any of the symptoms that I just mm-hmm. described. Was that like a blood test or? It's just a blood test. Okay. Yes, it's a blood test. It doesn't have to be done fasting. It can be done at any time of the day. There are certain things that can interfere with the thyroid blood test. Um, So that's something to keep in mind. Um, If you have a test that's a little abnormal, it could potentially be because, for instance, a lot of people take biotin. And and this is kind of a little known fact that biotin actually messes up, can mess up your thyroid function test. So you have to be careful when you're interpreting those tests, depending on what medications patients might be taking. And once the patient is diagnosed, say you're hyperthyroid, Mm -hmm. so what would happen? How do you treat that? So hyperthyroidism is a little bit less common than hypo, but the way you would treat that is there's three different, three different, um, kind of approaches. Okay. 
and it depends partly on what's causing the overactive thyroid. The commonest cause is something called Graves' disease. Now, Graves' disease is an autoimmune disease, and an autoimmune disease is basically a condition where your immune system is recognizing normal, healthy cells as being the enemy. Right, so attacking them. Exactly, it Mm -hmm. attacks them. So Graves' disease is an autoimmune disease where your body's, you know, your immune system's attacking your thyroid, Mm -hmm. um, putting out what's called thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulins and causing this inflammation and resulting in a lot of thyroid hormone production. Mm -hmm. Now, if you do have Graves' disease, then typically we will start to treat people with anti-thyroid medication. Okay. Um, And the natural history of Graves' disease is kind of that when you put them on these medications, a certain percentage of people in anywhere from six months to a year to a year and a half might go into remission, meaning that their thyroid function just normalizes and we can take the medication away. (laughs) Some of those patients may stay in remission. Some of them the, you know, the thyroid abnormality might come back. And so in those instances, we'll look at a more permanent solution. So the permanent solution would be either radioactive iodine or surgery. Or removal of the thyroid. Exactly. Surgery to remove the thyroid gland. And then what happens when you remove the thyroid? You have to give it a supplement? Right. Okay. So when you remove the thyroid gland, you don't have any thyroid hormone. So you have to take replacement thyroid hormone for the rest of your life. And that's really important. And I have had patients say, well, you know, if I'm just replacing one pill with another, what's the big advantage? Like, why should I have my thyroid taken out? I could just keep taking this anti-thyroid medication because you're telling me I have to take another medication anyway if I, you know, if I take care of the problem. And the answer to that is that anti-thyroid medication has side effects. Um, The side effects are rare, but they are there and they are dangerous. So we don't like people to be on it for, well, indefinitely. Indefinitely. Exactly. Um, On the other hand, thyroid hormone, unless you have a true allergy to it, which is exceedingly rare, really doesn't have side effects because you're just replacing something that isn't there. Right. Now, what are some of the risks of the hyperthyroid for a patient? Right. So, and that's that... That's, I'm glad you bring that up because that's the other thing. Managing hyperthyroidism is a lot more challenging than managing hypothyroidism usually. And hyperthyroidism, sometimes even if we throw a lot of medications at it, in, in some instances, is hard to control. So we do like to find a permanent solution to it. If... We, if we're unable to control hyperthyroidism or if it goes undiagnosed for a long time, right. what ends up happening is, especially in older patients, um, your heart rate can get very high and it predisposes you to heart rate abnormalities uh-huh. like atrial fibrillation. The other major um, effect of uncontrolled hyperthyroidism is osteoporosis. So what it does is it kind of speeds up bone turnover and as a result your bones become more porous and weak and more prone to fracture. Wow. So those are pretty... So you want to make sure that you control that hyperthyroidism. So whether it's on the medication Mm -hmm. for a period of time, hopefully putting it in revision or a longer conversation about a more permanent cure. Now what about hypo? So hypothyroidism Usually that's more straightforward. Usually that's really just about, you know, adjusting the dose of your levothyroxine till you get the right dose for the patient. Now, if somebody has had their thyroid gland removed, they have no thyroid production. And so then so we, it's easier, It's right? easier because we have a calculation that we can do to right. estimate a dose. Right. Um, and it's based on their body weight. It may not be the exact dose, but it's usually close, and we can just you know tinker with it a little bit to get it just right. Now, if if somebody has autoimmune hypothyroidism, which is pretty common, they still have their thyroid there. So typically, right. their thyroid's still making a little bit of hormone. So then we're just replacing what they don't have, and that's a little bit of trial and error. You know, right. we'll start with a low dose and gradually titrate up, checking your blood tests regularly. And, and what does we'll, regularly mean usually? So, in the initial stages. TSH, which is what we usually track to right. adjust thyroid hormone, mm-hmm. it takes about six weeks to, to really reach its new level. So typically we'll tell people every six to eight weeks, we'll check your thyroid function until we get you to the range that we need. How about in the pregnant woman? So thyroid hormone is really important in pregnancy because it's really important to the growing fetus. Mm. Um, So in pregnancy, we're really trying to keep people within 
a relatively tight range. Um, and we actually prefer people to be at the upper end of normal because it's mm. so important to the fetus. In right. fact, if you have hyperthyroidism, um, you know, we'll, we'll often... Just, leave just it monitor it and right. leave it alone unless it's very high. You know, right. if you're just at that upper end of normal, we really would just keep watching you. But for the woman that's got the hypothyroidism, mm-hmm. so you have to monitor them more closely. Now, do the hormones that are affecting her pregnancy throw it off even more? Good question. So if somebody has um, hyper, hypothyroidism to begin with, their thyroid hormone requirement will increase in pregnancy. Mm. And so we'll often tell patients, if they're in the childbearing age, we'll tell them, you know, if you get pregnant even before you see me, we want you increasing your thyroid hormone right away. Right. So typically we'll tell them to go up by about 30% from what their baseline dose is. And the reason for that is your your protein binding levels in pregnancy go up. Right. So more of your thyroid hormone is bound. And what really matters, what's really active is the free hormone level. Okay. And so to maintain that at a good level, they need more more of the medication. They need more of the medication. Is it hereditary? It, to a large extent, thyroid disease is hereditary. Both hyper and hypo. Both hyper and hypo, is if it's the autoimmune variety especially. Okay. Um, and it's much, much more common in women than yeah. men. So, you well, know. thanks. Yeah, <laughs> I know. You're lucky, Johnny. Another one of those blessings of being a woman. Well, another one of those blessings. <laughs> yeah. How about thyroid nodules? Thyroid nodules, any kind of thyroid disease is actually more common in women than in men, mm. including thyroid nodules. Now, thyroid nodules are incredibly common. They and are so common. They're so common. I, and I know you're newer to this area, mm-hmm. but you are going to be bombarded with thyroid by thyroid nodules. nodules. Yeah. I, when I worked for the radiology group, I could not mm-hmm. believe how many people mm-hmm. were coming in for ultrasounds. Exactly. And now that we're doing more imaging for other reasons, oh, yeah. we're picking up more of them. By accident. By almost. accident. Right. <laughs> and um, and thyroid nodules are basically a large part of how they're managed. Depends on how they look on ultrasound. So usually they're found more by just a general exam, right? Right. So either they're found incidentally because you've had imaging for another reason, or they're found when your primary care physician does your physical exam and they feel your thyroid feels a little big. Maybe it's a little bumpy. They'll send you for an ultrasound. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's the patients, the patients, patients who are very aware, you know, they, they look in the mirror, they might see a little bump that's right, right, right. not very obvious. But if they're really paying attention, they'll bring it to the attention of the doctor and say, you know, I think I there's something new there. And and how do you treat them? So and why do you treat why them? do you treat them? So like I said the thyroid nodules are very common. The vast majority of them are benign. They're nothing to worry about. However, there is that small percentage, less than 5%, that might be cancer. Mm. So we don't like to ignore them. Right. So when we look at a thyroid nodule by ultrasound, and it's been shown, a lot of studies have shown that ultrasound characteristics of the thyroid nodule are pretty good at telling you whether this is a problematic nodule or not. So we'll go by size, we'll go by what the margins of the nodule look like, whether there are calcium deposits in the nodule, whether the nodule has too much blood flow in it. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are all these clues that tell you whether this nodule looks like it's not a problem and whether it might be a problem. And if if it does look like it has some of those problematic characteristics, we'll typically send the patient to have a biopsy. And a lot of patients get freaked out when they hear right, that. Right. Um, but the biopsy really is um, not as scary as it sounds. It's a tiny, it's a little, very thin needle. And before it even goes in, they give you a little injection so that you don't feel anything. Right. The needle goes in and out. It's very quick. Um, it's done in the, you know, in the radiology suite. Mm-hmm. Um, most patients tell me that it's, you know, it was over so quickly and they really didn't feel much other than a little pressure. Um, sometimes the Nodules are deeper and they're a little difficult to get to. And then you might have a patient who has a little, not quite such a pleasant experience. But for the most part, they're easy to biopsy and and we get an answer pretty quickly. And if they are cancerous, we take the thyroid right out. Right. So thyroid cancer, as many people have heard, is is usually very amenable to treatment. Um, There are there are 
three different three main different groups of thyroid cancer one of which is very very dangerous mm-hmm. um, but fortunately it's also the rarest mm-hmm. the vast majority of thyroid cancer that we see is papillary or follicular and usually we pick it up pretty early and you it's know it's curable it's right? completely by taking most of the time by it's completely taking curable. that thyroid right out that's right and then going on a supplement Yes, going exactly. on the supplement. Now, if you have a thyroid nodule, I know, Johnny, we don't have a lot of time yet, but I mm-hmm. want to get this in. If you have a thyroid nodule that is benign, mm-hmm. you just leave it alone? So it depends on the size. Okay. If it is truly benign, um, then we'll still watch it with ultrasound. Right. We might do the ultrasound once a year for a couple of years. If we see that it increases in size to you know and we have specific dimensions that we look at for how much it increases in size if it increases in size and it's concerning we'll re-biopsy it if it stays the same and it looks the same we'll just watch it for a couple of years in a couple of years if nothing's changed it's usually okay to stop watching it is there any do, can it cause hyper or hypothyroidism, the nodule itself? Okay, so, and that's a good question because we didn't get into that. We right. talked about autoimmune right. thyroid disease, Graves' disease. Right. The other thing that can cause overactive thyroid is what we call a toxic nodule. Okay. And that's a nodule that's just autonomously producing too much thyroid oh. hormone. It's suppressing the rest of the normal thyroid, right. but it's just pouring out thyroid hormone. For those nodules, usually antithyroid medication doesn't always work that well. In those instances, we'll sometimes go straight to the radioactive iodine um, to just deal with the problem. Just to shrink that nodule and get rid of Mm -hmm. it. Right. Johnny, we had a wealth of information tonight. Mm Incredible. So, Dr. Silpashetti, thank you so much thank for you joining for having me today. You were incredible. You. So, Dr. Shetty is our endocrinologist extraordinaire um, with our Franklin Medical Group, and she's at 1389 West Main Street in our new Diabetic and Endocrinology Center at 205-755-7711. And I know that number by heart because <laughs> it was Dr. Gnidic's number. Right. So, I know that number by heart. And we're so excited to have you part of the team along with Dr. Gnidic and Dr. Freitag. And if you would like to meet all of our, our endocrinologists, hopefully we'll, we can get you all there. i got to see if I can mm-hmm. get Dr. Gnidic to join us that night. We are going to be having a program called Team Type 2 Diabetes on November 10th, and that's going to be at Naugatuck Valley Community College. And that is one of our Spirit of Women events, which is always packed mm-hmm. to the gills. We had 300 women at our last event, so we uh, welcome you to join us. And I know Dr. Shetty will be there in the audience talk, talking to people and answering questions of anybody that had questions on pre-diabetes or diabetes. So again, thank you so much. And thank you everyone for joining us tonight. Um, I will be back in two weeks. It is Breast Cancer Awareness next month. So we are definitely going to have a full, full program of our breast cancer surgeons. And I believe in two weeks, which I think is October 12th, um, I will have with me Dr. Beth Sealing, who's going to be talking about um, hidden scar surgery that she's been accredited to do, which is really I think kind of neat. So joining you again October 12th. And I believe I'm back here the second Friday in the morning. Um, And we will be talking about something called Mental Notes. That's our morning program. So Spirit of Women is putting out a program called Mental Notes. And I'll have with me Pam Pratt, who is our APRN in behavioral health. So I think you can get an idea of what that's about, our confusion and our memory loss as we get older. Sounds like a great lineup. Sounds like a great lineup. So hopefully you can join us. So this is Robin Sills again from St. Mary's Hospital on Medically Speaking. Thank you again. And remember, St. Mary's Hospital, exceptional care, every patient, every day. 